If, if you were to ask me, what have I learned in the, in the couple years of me being out here and, and the team from CME coming out here to help this church and to serve these people, um, it hard to be, it'd be hard to narrow it down. But if I had to, if you forced me to, to single out a thing and to point to a particular lesson, it would be that God really does answer prayer. And I knew that before. It wasn't something like I, I had never heard that he answers prayer, and now I know. But there was, there was an experienced reality of coming to God again and again, bringing specific requests to him, things that seemed you know, almost impossible, and God just abundantly and overwhelmingly and repeatedly answering our prayers. And, and I've, I've been so in awe of God's goodness to us, undeserved mercy again and again coming to us as a church, that I wanted to kick this year off by just reminding myself and reminding us that this is the work of God. There is no other explanation for what has been happening here. And we need to be reminded, and I want to stir you up by way of reminder, that God is the one who does the ministry here. That the Spirit is the one who works in the hearts of people. That we are mere tools and vessels. And that uh, what we talked about last week ought to really shape the way we think about life and think about ministry. And we summed up last week's message in John 15 by looking at this. We said that we could do nothing. That was our first point. We can do nothing. Nothing. We, we can't grow spiritually. We can't bear fruit spiritually. We can't see any of the good things happen in our lives or to people around us in our own strengths. We can't force it to happen. We can't coerce it to happen. We can't manipulate it to happen. We can do nothing. And yet we also looked at the, the reality that's right parallel to that one that Jesus talks about in John 15 is that Jesus can do anything. That it, when we abide in Christ... His life, it's like a vine and a branch. The life of the vine flows into the life of the branch. And so thus we have the life of Christ in us. And it's only through His life are we able to bear fruit and to contribute to the growth of other people and to grow ourselves. And so our third point was, well, let's abide in Christ this year and ask away. Now, reflecting on first, or not first John, John chapter 15, verse 7 where Jesus tells us, ask whatever you wish. If you're abiding in me and my words are abiding in you, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so we were encouraged to pray. I hope that that, that, that challenge, exhortation, reminder to pray is lingering with you and it has been something you've been thinking about this week. Because anytime you talk about abiding in Christ, as we did from John 15 last week, you inevitably have to think about praying. You have to think about and evaluate your own prayer life. Abiding in Christ is saying that I don't have the source of strength in myself. I can't do anything of any eternal value in myself. I can't change anybody's life. I can't help anybody eternally in myself. 
And so I must look to Christ. I I deny any kind of inclination towards self-reliance and I turn to Jesus as the source of my life, the source of my strength, the source of my growth, the source of my ministry, the source of any fruit that would ever be born in my life has to come from Christ. And so we become dependent upon Jesus in the primary way that is going to express itself is in the way that we pray. If we are abiding in Christ, we will be a praying people. If we are to bear any fruit this year, it will be because we are a praying people. How's our generation at praying? I mean, if you were to just not even look at the data, if we were not even to pull up the surveys, how would you think that our particular generation does in prayer? I mean, if we were to rank our generation in terms of how we pray up against some other generations of Christians in ages past, how would we rank? I don't have any hard data. My hunch is that it wouldn't be very good news for us. I happen to think that uh, uh, the availability of technology... The, the access we have, the constancy of our connection to beeps and buzzes and tweets and posts and likes and favorites actually ends up distracting us and training our minds to be uh, almost hardwired to struggle with focus. How many of you experienced that to be true? The, the data on that is actually pretty clear and obvious that the our generation that is growing up on screens and on social media has a much shorter attention span than generations in the past. I remember reading that our newest generation, the generation that's coming up as our children, has about the same attention span as a goldfish. I don't know how they figured out the attention span of a goldfish, but I read that headline once. I mean, how are we doing? And, And then if we were to ask ourselves, How's your attention span? Are you able to focus when you pray? Are you able to to be undistracted? How do we rank? Are we a praying generation? Are we a, a, a praying church? I remember listening to Joel Beakey, a pastor. He's also a Puritan scholar. So he spends a lot of his time in Puritan books, books written in centuries past about Christians and written by Christians who have lived before us, uh, exemplary Christians. And he said that the biggest problem with the church today is prayerless praying. Prayerless praying. He says that there's, there's many churches that are preaching faithfully. Uh, just like the, the Reformers did, and just like the Puritans did. There are many churches, they're not saying anything new, they're still opening up the Word of God, they're still expositing the text, they're still preaching faithfully. There's many churches that are doing that, just like other generations have done, but he does say the difference between us and them isn't really what we're preaching, it's how we are praying. And I wonder if prayerless Praying is something you're familiar with, or if it's something that you've gotten used to. Say, so what's, what's prayerless praying? Let's first start by actually thinking about what real praying is. Pray, praying at least involves three things. It starts with a sense of need. 
a sense of deep need, whereas we recognize that the need is, the needs to be met is outside of ourselves, outside of our ability to meet the need. And then it moves to faith, faith in the true living God. It moves to a trust in Him, a looking unto Him, and then it culminates with a crying out. A, a, a verbalization or a look to God as the one who meets the needs that you feel deep down. It might be a need for God to be glorified. You recognize that need. You have a sense that this needs to happen and you cry out in praise in your prayers. It could be a need that you sense in your own life that you lack the holiness you desire. You lack the righteousness being worked out in your life that you desire. You sense the need. You recognize God as the sole provider of what you need and you cry out to Him. There's need. There's faith. And then there's a crying out to God. It comes from a true conviction. It is an act of faith. It is believing that God truly is omnipotent and really is benevolent and actually does delight to not only hear the prayers of His people, but to respond to them with what they need. If we lack these things, we will not pray. Or maybe worse, we will start to engage in prayerless praying. See, if we lack any sense of need, we feel like we're pretty self-reliant. We don't have the need that is required for true prayer. We'll come to the Lord in pride. Our prayers will be mostly perfunctory, mostly going through the motions. If we don't have any sense of need, why come to God so we won't have any longing for God? We'll just do it because we know that's what Christians do. If we have a sense of need, but we don't have any true faith, our prayers will tend to be vague, unspecific, mainly about personal comforts and personal preferences. They'll be filled with tired cliches, empty words. We will be, as Hans read, like the Gentiles who think just by repeating themselves and saying lots of words will be more likely to be heard because we're not praying with faith. We feel like we've got to manipulate God to get what we want. Those are all kinds of prayerless praying. Prayerless praying is actually worse, I think, than not praying at all. And the reason is because it actually begins to persuade us that we're just fine because, of course, I pray. We pray at the table. We pray before bed. We, we pray. I'm a, I'm a praying person. And yet, if you were to evaluate ourselves, really, it would be the, the fact that it's true that we, we don't really have a sense of deep need of God, a need of His help. We don't have a real conviction of faith that He is the sole provider. We're not really crying out to Him as we ought. We're just praying because we know that's what Christians are supposed to do. Prayerless praying is like going to the gym, taking a look around, nodding an affirmation at all the weight sets there and all the other people working out and then walking out the door. Any of you ever done that? I mean, what would be the use of that? And then someone goes to you and they say, hey, do you go to the gym? You go, oh yeah, I go every day. I'm always at the gym. You can actually persuade yourself that just by showing up to the gym, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I think there are a lot of us that struggle with prayerless praying. 
There's no depth of need. There's no sense of the conviction that God alone is the sole provider for all my needs. And so there's no real crying out to God. And yet, we continue to pray in a perfunctory, cliche-driven, just kind of saying things we've heard other people say, thinking that we got to work ourselves into some emotional state. we got to act like we're really sincere. And if we do it good enough, then maybe God might hear us and He might answer our prayers. Prayerless praying. I don't want to beat you with a stick of guilt this morning. I don't want us to feel bad and be driven to pray because we're all feeling bad. I do, however, want to wake us up to what seems like a particularly alarming trend in our society is that we are distracted. We can agree with that, right? We are a very distracted people. And distraction will play itself out in many ways. And I think we ought to pay special attention to the way it affects the way we pray. And so I want to stir us up to pray this morning, and I want to cultivate and think about how we can cultivate a life of prayer. Uh, One of the the answers to prayer that I would love to see come to fruition would be this. The year 2020 is the year some of you learned to pray in your praying. 2020 was a year that some of you began to forsake prayerless praying. That some of you might even look back at this year as the year that you you set aside distraction. You made time for that which matters most. Namely, your time with the living God to devote yourself to Him, to abide in Him, to live life for Him, to start and end your day reflecting on Him. That your year, this year, will be one where you have prayed more real prayers, more fervent prayers, more God-centered prayers maybe than you've ever prayed before in your life. So we're here in Colossians. Just a little bit of the background. Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul. He's in prison while he's writing this. He's writing to a small church that he's never met. He doesn't know these people, but he's heard of their faith. He writes to encourage them. He's teaching a little fledgling church uh, some of the things they need to know to face the reality. The church apparently is struggling with some false teaching. And so a lot of the, the letter is written to show the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows how that plays itself out in many practical ways in the second part of the book. And at the end, he starts giving them some very ground-level, street-level application for if Jesus is supreme, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is, in fact, fully God, if He is a present Savior, well, how should we then live? What do we need to be as a church? Well, he, he writes them and He challenges them. He, he encourages and exhorts them to devote themselves to pray. And I want to take what he says, and I just want to camp on it. I want to examine it, and I want to take it from its context and say, this is now for us. God's Word has been preserved through the ages so that we, a little church, not unlike the Colossian church, could benefit from Paul's divine wisdom here. And look at chapter 4. We're going to look at a couple verses. Look at verse 2. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on which, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. 
I want to look at the kind of prayer that we want to cultivate in our lives. We're just going to look at some of the obvious statements, the obvious descriptors of the, of the way that he wants these Colossians to pray. And so here's the kind of prayer that we want to develop at Grace Rancho in 2020. Here's our first type, first kind, a first word that we're going to use to describe it. It's this, steadfast praying. Steadfast praying. You see it right there in the text. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. In the Greek, it's one word. The continue steadfastly is one word and it has an idea of attaching yourself to something. To wait upon. It would be like a waiter that stands by the table waiting for the people he or she is serving to give a request. It's being right there eager to listen. It's described, the same word is used to describe a soldier who has the responsibility to stand guard. They're not to give up. They're not to walk away from their duty. They're not to walk away from their responsibility. It has the idea of being attached, being devoted, sensing a responsibility. It's being steadfast. It is, I don't give up on this. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to throw in the towel. I'm not going to give up quickly. Steadfast prayer is that you go to the door and you knock and you knock and you knock until the door is answered. You don't knock once and say, well, they must not be home or they must not be willing to answer the prayer. They answer the door. I'm out of here. Steadfast prayer does the opposite. It says, I'm not giving in. Paul is saying this church, this little church in Colossae, needs to be committed to steadfast prayer. They're not going to give up. They've got to keep going. They just keep on persistently praying, asking, seeking, knocking, not giving up, not giving in. in the, toward the end of the, the letter, he describes a man by the name of Epaphras in chapter 4, verse 12. And he uses this word. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He says, always struggling on your behalf in his prayer. Struggling. The word is agonizomai. It has the word, you can even hear it in the English, it's, it's to agonize. The, the idea that this kind of steadfast prayer is like a wrestling, an agonizing. It's the kind of prayer that exerts energy. It's the kind of prayer that exhausts itself. It's not just a kind of lazy, drowsy prayer. It is persistent. Do you guys agonize in prayer? Would you describe your prayer life as steadfast? Or are you quick to give up? Do you pray for something over and over and over again? Or are you quick to mistake God's not yet for something that would cause you to stop praying? Maybe you're thinking God's saying, give up. Not doing it for you. Isn't it true that sometimes God withholds an answer to prayer because He loves when His children come to Him with their requests? And often He will not give us what we're asking for immediately, not because He doesn't love us, but because He loves us so much that He wants us to keep coming back to Him. He delights in the prayers of His children. He wants you to keep coming back. He's a good Father that loves 
His children coming to Him. Don't give up your prayer. Don't stop and give up so quickly. Be steadfast is the the idea that not give up in your prayers. I'm so thankful for those of you who are steadfast prayer warriors. You've been praying for this church. You've been praying for the members of this church. And I guarantee if you don't see fruit in this lifetime, I promise you'll see it in eternity. Because God is a God who answers your steadfast prayers. Live in the confidence that God has made promises to answer prayers. And while we may never see in this side of eternity the answer to our prayers, we have rock-solid, take-them-to-the-bank promises that God hears and answers your prayers. So continue praying. Excel still more. Continue abounding in this good work and bear much fruit. This is Paul's strategy for this little church. Don't stop praying. Be continuing steadfastly in your prayers. Uh, remember George Mueller. We, we brought him up last week. We're going to bring him up again. Encourage you to grab his biography. He noted the days and the years, specifically how long it took him to pray for a thing until that prayer was answered. There are some things that God intends to give you, but after you're committed to steadfast prayer. Not the only word he uses to describe kind of prayers we ought to be bringing. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. But look at this next little phrase. Continue steadfastly in prayer. He says, being watchful. Being watchful in it. Attentive. Alert. It's the word that's used to describe the alertness of a man who's staying up all night to protect his house from thieves. That's how it's used. It's the word that describes someone who's on high alert. If he hears a twig snap, he's, he's ready. If he hears someone coming, footsteps around the corner, he's watching. He's describing the type of prayer that doesn't only continue asking and asking and asking, but he's describing the kind of prayer that has its eyes open, is attentive to what he's praying, and is also looking, watching to see how God might be answering his own prayers. Give attention to what you're saying. Be thoughtful in the way that you're praying. Be watchful. Like a watchman on a tower looking out to see how God might be answering our prayers. It, this, this, we become prayerless in our praying when we're not watchful, right? How many of us have experienced this? Because we're not alert in our prayers, we're not watchful in our prayers, we're not attentive in our prayers, our, our prayers are almost just like our own thoughts. They, they almost... Maybe we start by praying and then suddenly we're just thinking about people and things and our to-do list and our schedule and all the issues of the day and we're not actually praying anymore. Now we're just thinking about things. Well, what's that a result of? Why, why does that happen? We're not watching. It's not watchful prayer. It's not alert prayer. It's, it's drowsy kind of prayer. Inattentive prayer. Let me, let me just say that this takes effort. Anyone who ever says, no, no, prayer's easy. Prayer's the easiest of all the spiritual disciplines. I, I might say that that person has not tried to really pray. 
Because prayer is exhausting if we do it right. It's exerting of energy. It's attentive. It is doing all you can to focus your mind on that which is true, on who you're praying about, and praying who you're praying to, and what you're praying about, and to bring those things to God. Is there an alertness to your prayers? Now, I want to just encourage you to just remember that Jesus is a great high priest. Jesus is a kind and generous and tender Savior. And that when you wander in your prayers, God is not sitting up there going, well, He wandered. I'm not listening anymore. That gave me a chance to check out. I don't got to listen to this guy's ramblings anymore. Actually, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is praying for us. And He's compensating for all our weaknesses in our prayers. He is always praying, always living to make intercession for His children. That is an encouragement that even in my failure, which is often, which is too frequent that I like to admit, but my Savior prays for me better than I could ever pray. In all my life, Jesus is praying for me. And so I come with confidence, and yet I am challenged by this text to be watchful, to be attentive, to labor and to exert myself to do all I can to focus and be watchful in my prayers. There, there are a few tips that we might, we might look at to, to try to engage in watchful praying. First, I'd say, pray for help in praying. If you want to be one who does watchful praying, ask God to help you do watchful praying. Pray that you'd be better at praying. Start there. Remember, you can't do this. You can't change in this way. You can't grow in this way. Pray that God would grow you in that way. Second, do all you can to get alone. To get quiet time. This is what Jesus did. Our own Lord and perfect Savior who had no sin nature. He got alone and He prayed. He found desolate places. You would do well. We would do well to do the same thing. To maybe turn off your phone. I mean, it's much harder to get in a desolate place when you're dragging your phone with you everywhere you go. I mean, that, that is like bringing a city with you. It, it follows you around and there's all kinds of distractions. And so it might be that you, you first, you ask God to help you, but second, if you want to engage in watchful praying, go through very practical and ruthless, ruthless hard word to say, ruthless ways to just get rid of some of the distractions in your life. Cut them out. Get alone. Think about this also. How can you be strategic in engaging your heart and your mind in your prayers. You, you do that by getting alone, yes. But, but how can you engage your mind in the way you pray? In Psalm 102, I'm going to turn there and, and read a passage. You can maybe uh, follow along if you want. Just listen. Prayer goes like this. So the psalm goes like this in 102 verse 16. The Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute. He does not despise their prayer. Listen to this. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. That a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. This psalmist is talking about writing down the works of the Lord so that a future generation would hear about the good deeds of God and be encouraged to worship Him themselves. 
It has been a practice of Christians throughout the ages in an effort to engage their hearts and engage their minds to write down sometimes their own prayers. That's all the book of Psalms, right? Written down prayers. Addressing God in prayer. Paul writes in so many of his letters his own prayers to the people he's writing to. Let these things be written down. I think it's a valid way, and I don't think I have to say this is a biblical command. I don't think it is. I think it's an option, though, and I think it's a way that Christians throughout history have done this. Often, Christians have found it helpful to write down both the things that they are praying and the ways that God is answering prayer as a way to remind themselves that God, in fact, is faithful. Do you have a way to keep your mind engaged in the prayers that you pray? Do you have a way to know that God is answering your prayers? There are heroes of the faith throughout church history who, who we know about their lives because we've had their prayer journals preserved. In fact, that's what this book is. It's a journal. His autobiography is a recording of his own journal. David Brainerd, a missionary to the Indians, was the same way. He never intended his journal to be read by millions, and it is. But it was just a recording of his own prayers. Many people use prayer lists to help themselves be watchful. They write down the people they're praying for. They write down the dates they've prayed for those people. They write down the issues they're bringing before the Lord. I want to recommend something like this. Everyone's different, and I can't have a biblical mandate to say you must do it a certain way. I will say that we are commanded to be watchful, alert, and attentive in our prayers. And often that means engaging our minds and hearts in some way so we know what we're praying for, we're praying specifically, and we know when our prayers are answered. Every time we have someone come into membership, we pull out the Membership directory. You guys got this? The newest edition came out in November. A new edition's coming out soon. We pull out the membership directory and we encourage our members. And many of our members are doing this on a regular basis. We say, just start praying for the other members of the church. If you just pray three people a day, you'll get through the whole membership in less than a month. I encourage you, this is a way of practicing watchfulness. Specific praying, and then you could write down the types of things you've been praying for specific people. Then you can follow up with them and know and watch your prayers and how the Lord is answering them. Watchful praying. I want to encourage you. Paul writes, be continuing in steadfast prayer. Be watchful in your praying. Here's our, here's our third way that we want to pray this year. Thankful praying. Right there in the text. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I want to zoom out for a second and just ask the question, why, why prayer? Why prayer at all? God could have arranged the universe so that we don't pray. We're not called to pray, but He has not done that. He has arranged the universe in such a way that He invites His people to call upon Him. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God is always encouraging a deep relationship of His people with Himself in such a way that they are calling upon Him. It appears that from Scripture we gather that God has chosen prayer to be His appointed means 
of accomplishing His purposes in the world. God has purposes, and He could do them with or without us. He is a sovereign King. And yet, He has organized the universe in such a way that all the purposes He has to accomplish are accomplished in the prayers of His people. He folds us into His running of the universe. He allows us to participate in His redemptive plan. This is, this is remarkable. We, we ask why. Go to John 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And Jesus is teaching His disciples about so many things. And in this particular passage, He makes this amazing statement in verse 13. We'll just look at the, the single verse here. He says, Whatever you ask, whatever, whatever you ask, in My name, this I will do. Why? Why is, it, why is God saying that He's going to answer prayer? What is, what is going on there? What, what is the purpose of, of God inviting His people to ask Him for things? This gives an answer. Look at this. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me, verse 14, anything in My name, I will do it. Why? That the Father is glorified in the Son. Why does prayer exist? It is God getting glory for Himself as He proves Himself to be powerful and good and generous in the way He responds to our prayers. Think of it this way. I heard this illustration once. I thought it to be helpful. I'll share it with you. Imagine this. You're, you're paralyzed from the neck down. You can do nothing for yourself, but you have a strong, reliable caretaker. That caretaker watches over you, takes care of your every need. Now you have visitors coming over. And you really love your caretaker, and so you'd like to show your visitors how trustworthy, reliable, kind, generous your caretaker is. Now you're in bed. You can't do anything. How, how, do, you, how do you prove the value of the caretaker? You, you don't try to sit up and do everything for yourself. That doesn't prove anything about the value of the caretaker, does it? What do you do instead? You ask your caretaker to prop you up in bed. You ask your caretaker to get you a glass of water. You ask your caretaker to prepare a meal for you. In other words, you continually ask your caretaker to do for you things that you cannot do for yourself. And as the caretaker gladly, willingly, powerfully helps you, serves you, condescends to your level to meet your every need, anyone who's watching is not saying, wow, what a great paralyzed person you are. They're saying, wow, Look at the generosity and the kindness of this caretaker. Do you guys see the analogy? 
Sometimes we think that the way we serve God is by being strong and doing everything for God. I'm going to do things for God. Look how strong I am in the way I do things for God. That doesn't glorify God because it demonstrates our strength, not His. We are spiritually paralyzed. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. How do we glorify God? How does prayer glorify God? It is this. We are paralyzed in the bed. We can do nothing spiritually for ourselves, nothing spiritually for anyone else, but we magnify His goodness and His worth and His power and His kindness by asking Him to do things for us. And God has ordained that prayer be a way of magnifying His own glory such that we ask Him for things and He has committed Himself to answer our prayers. The Father is glorified in the Son when we come to Him with all our needs. We don't primarily glorify God by doing things for God. We primarily come to Him and say, I'm paralyzed. I can't do anything for myself. God, prove Your love. Prove Your gentleness. God, prove Your glorious kindness by doing that for me that I could never do for myself. And God shows Himself to be a God of great mercy and great love. And He magnifies His own glory by answering the prayers of undeserving people. It's for His own glory. Really, friends, this is the Gospel. This is the Gospel. We, we don't deserve to come to God. We can't come to God. And yet God magnifies His great love and His great mercy His abounding patience by humbling Himself and doing for people who could never do for themselves anything related to salvation. He he does it all for them. He dies on the cross like a criminal. He rises from the dead demonstrating power over sin and Satan and death. And then He promises to save people not who are saying, I'm strong enough to save myself. He saves people who say, I can't. I can't do anything. I'm I'm, I'm paralyzed. And Jesus saves those people who are weak for His own glory to demonstrate His own marvelous strength. Okay, now let's go back to what Paul taught us. That we are to be praying with thanksgiving. We are to pray in such a way that when God answers our prayer, our initial reaction is to give God praise. That's the point of prayer, is that God is glorified. And so our prayers should always be flavored with thankfulness. He allows us to participate in what He's doing in our prayers. And so we are praying, we are watchful, and as we watch God's hand move in the world in response to our prayers, we are filled with thanksgiving. I actually think watchfulness and thankfulness are tied together. You see how that's so? If you're never watching in your prayers, how do you know how God's answering them? If you're never watching in your prayers, how do you know what to give thanks for? If your prayers are inattentive and unspecific and all vague, it's very hard to give thankful praise to God for things He's doing in your life. Our prayers can be more filled with thanksgiving if we're more watchful. So let me encourage you, as Paul is saying, let's be steadfast. We keep knocking on the door. We don't give up. We're persistent. But we're also watchful. We're attentive. 
we're praying for things specifically. Our minds are engaged and we're watching the kinds of things we're praying for and the kinds of ways God's answering and we are filled with thanksgiving. We're watching our prayers so that we can be filled with thanksgiving. Anytime God answers our prayers, we explode in thanks to God because that's the purpose of prayer. We are invited to ask whatever we wish. Why? That the Father might be glorified in the Son. God has committed to answer prayer for His own glory. And so let's be filled with thanksgiving. Let's give Him the glory He deserves. Our fourth kind of prayer we see starting in verse 3 where Paul says at the same time, Pray also for us. Pray for us. He writes to this church. The church doesn't know Paul. He mentions earlier that they've never seen each other face to face. And yet he's enlisting these people to begin praying for his apostolic ministry to advance the gospel. Pray for us. Paul knows that prayer is God's means to advance the Gospel and to gather in His elect. He knows that is true. And so he enlists new believers to begin praying to that end. Pray also for us that God might open up a door. I love this about Paul. He's an apostle. He had visions of Christ. He was taught by Himself. He had experiences unlike any of us had ever had. And He has no sense of self-reliance. Shamelessly asking other people to pray for Him. I wonder about you and in your own prayer habits. Do you enlist others to pray for you? Do you enlist others to pray for your own ministry? You have people you're praying for, I have no doubt of. You have neighbors that you'd love to see come to the Lord. You have family members. You have uh, friends that are close that don't know Christ. And you're praying for them. And excel still more and be steadfast and watchful and praying for those people. But like Paul, let me encourage you, enlist others to do the same thing. To labor alongside you. To pray with you. Get more soldiers in that battle. Ask other people to start praying for those same people that you're praying for. Let's get a, a group of people who are committed to steadfast, watchful, alert, praying. Does anyone know who you're praying for? How many people are, are in your little group of people praying? Our, our fourth kind of praying that we're, we're going to be talking about is, is missional praying. In other words, praying as it relates to the mission of the church. Be shameless, friends, in asking for prayer. I don't know why it is. I don't know how it's happened that sometimes Christians can be so awkward about asking for prayer. And so awkward about praying for each other. Often it's pride. Sometimes it's the sense that they don't really care about me and my life and they got all their other things they're praying about. Why should they add me to their list? Paul doesn't even ask those questions. He just asks for prayer. He's getting people enlisted in his, own, in his own ministry. People he's never met. People who will never go to the places he's going. People who will never have the conversations with the people that he's going to have conversations with. But he's enlisting their prayers to do the ministry that he longs to do. It's missional praying. It's praying for the mission. What do you pray for? 
Do you have a, a category of prayer? Now, there are many ways to pray, and I'm not saying this is the only thing you should pray for. But I do believe, as Paul gives us an example, that our prayers should, at times, be missional, focused on gospel advance, focused on seeing lost people saved. I mean, if we were to, to gather up all the things we pray for, if we were to put them in a list, what would most of our prayers be about? Would it be mostly about personal preferences, mostly about personal comforts? We pray for good days. We pray for good nights of sleep. We pray for blessed meals. We pray for a lot of things. And, 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 and sometimes, if we're honest, the bulk of our prayers are mainly about personal comfort. I want you to notice something. Paul's in prison. He's asking for an open door, but he's not asking for the door of his prison cell to open. He's not asking that he would be released. He's in the middle of a very trying circumstance, and he's writing to these Colossian believers. He says, pray for us. Pray for us that a door might be opened. And almost you're wondering if you're reading that, oh, he wants to be set free from the prison. He's asking for an open door. But he doesn't say that. He says, pray for an open door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. He's not asking to be set free. He's asking that doors of opportunity would be swung open so he can keep preaching the Gospel wherever he is. Even if it's in prison, as we know that he has done. He is so focused and energized by the mission he's on that his own personal preferences and comforts are not the priority. When he comes to ask for prayer, he's not primarily asking that his life be made easier. He is asking that the mission be advanced, that the gospel be spread, that doors of opportunity would swing wide open. Pray for that. I ask the Lord that we would this year grow in a desire to see lost people converted. That we would have this passion for disciples to be made. That they would be turned into worshipers of Jesus Christ. And I pray that our prayers, our church's prayers, that all the individuals who are praying in this room would be praying, yes, for other needs, but also there would be time slotted or given to that which energizes them, and that would be that God would save sinners, that doors would be open, that the gospel would be advanced, that churches would be planted, that opportunity would be available for us. We want any big work to be done here, or any enduring fruit to be produced here. Or any church multiplication or reproduction to happen here. Or any spiritual awakening to happen in our community. It will only happen after prayer. It never happens before. It always happens after. 
This is true in the book of Acts. I encourage you to go read it and just note things. Note when there's a prayer and then note when there's some sort of answer to prayer. You see it. It's right there on the pages. You see praying, you see fruit. You see praying, you see fruit. And this has happened all throughout history. If ever there has been a revival, if ever there has been a spiritual awakening, I guarantee before there were crowds coming out to hear the gospel, there were people praying. There were people in unknown rooms, in places that no one remembers these people's names, and they were on their knees, and they were agonizing, and they were struggling with God for answered prayer. A.T. Pearson, actually a man who wrote a biography of George Mueller's life later on, he said this, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. See, prayer is when the advance of the gospel is secured. Prayer is what pushes back the enemy. Prayer is what leads to blind eyes being opened, uh, deaf ears hearing the gospel for the first time. Prayer is calling upon the only one who can actually do ministry to do ministry. Prayer, the image that comes into my mind, prayer is like going to the tree and shaking the tree so that all the fruit comes down. Ministry evangelism, discipleship, counseling, is afterwards picking up the fruit that has already been won through prayer. It's all won through prayer. It's only done through prayer. It's only done when God answers prayer. We must pray. If we want fruit, if we want growth, if we want health, if we want awakening, if we want revival, and I pray we all want these things, it happens after prayer. It happens as the people of God recognize that He is omnipotent and he is benevolent and he delights to answer prayer and we despair of ourselves as being able to do any of it and so we're on our knees and we're agonizing in prayer prayer is the essence of pastoral ministry of church ministry and remember in the book of acts when all these issues were coming up and the church was growing and there were things that happened to get in the way these Pastors and elders of the early church had to remember that their main two priorities were the Word of God and prayer. We stop praying. Let's just stop expecting God to do any good fruit here. But if we pray, as we do this year, let's expect God to answer it. Let's be steadfast. Let's be watchful. Let's be thankful for whatever He's doing. And let's pray with an eye to seeing revival and awakening and lost people saved and brought into the church. And then as we gather as the church, let's rejoice. He's answering prayer. He will do it. Let me use George Mueller as another example. He was praying boldly, specifically, persistently. Three words I want us to take with us and remember how to pray. Pray boldly, specifically, and persistently. He also was praying missionally. Missionally. He wanted others to see the glory of God. He writes this, In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. Do you have anyone that you're praying for? For their salvation. In 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether in sickness or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. 
I thanked God. It was thankfulness. And prayed for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them. And six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three, and I went on praying for the other two. And these two remained unconverted. 36 years later, the other two were still not converted. But he had been praying for them every single day. And he wrote, 36 years after he made that commitment, he said this, but I hope in God and I pray on. Friends, you want an example of steadfast prayer. This is it. I pray on. In defiance of what it looks like might happen, I'm going to pray on, he says, and look for the answer. They're not converted yet, but they will be. What confidence. 8 need 98. George Mueller dies. Never saw them converted. After praying every single day for 52 years. But after his death, the Lord answered his prayer because both of them got converted. This is like pit bull tenacity in prayer. This is steadfast prayer. This is I don't give up prayer. I mean, is the Lord's arm short that he doesn't want to save? Is he unwilling to answer? Why, why does Jesus then ask, tell us, teach us, keep asking? Really, that's the tense of those verbs. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't give up in praying. And may this be a year where you just pray and pray and pray. And instead of praying once in the morning and forgetting about it in the evening, may this be a year where you learn to pray in your praying. Steadfastly, watching, giving thanks at any moment that might be an answer to prayer. And then not giving up. Let me ask you. If all your prayers were answered tonight, would life be any different? If all your prayers were answered, how many people would be saved? Would anything change? Let me encourage you to think about that question. Maybe talk about it later today. If God answered all your prayers, what would be different? And then to pray in such a way, well, what if God answered all my prayers? And let's pray boldly to Him, specifically bringing our request to Him, being persistent. Let's pray that way. I want to finish with this. Colossians chapter 4. Epaphras. Again, this, this man that no, few people know his name. Paul had never met any one of these people in the Colossian church. The church wasn't planted by Paul. It was planted by an ordinary Christian named Epaphras. You say, what was the secret to his church planting? Well, he was faithful to teach the gospel in chapter 1, but look at this, verse 12, chapter 4. We already read it earlier. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling, always agonizing, wrestling on your behalf in his prayers. Could anyone say that about you? They're always agonizing 
They're always struggling in their prayers for you. Could anyone say that about you? That you are known as someone who agonizes and struggles in prayers for a people to be saved or to grow. You're always struggling on their behalf in your prayers. Listen, that you, he goes on, that may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. I want to put this before all the ordinary Christians in this room, and that's all of us. You want to be a part of some conversions this year? Learn to agonize and struggle in your prayers. You want to be a part of setting the foundation for a church plan or a revitalization that might come in the future? Agonize. Pray in your praying. Struggle. Exert yourself. Be steadfast. Be watchful. Give thanks in your praying. You want to be a part of reaching unreached people groups, of seeing lost people in Japan, France, and Africa come to know Christ. You may never travel there, but your prayers can. And start praying in that way. You long to bear much fruit for the glory of God. And we long that this year would be a year of much growth and much prayer. We talked about three things. I'll mention them briefly and then we'll end. Three things we talked about last week that I want to put before you again. Some recommendations. Some practical things you can begin to do in your life that might help this tremendously. Number one, devotion before distraction. This small adjustment of your daily life might reap life-changing benefits. Devote time to God before you get sucked into the downward spiral of distraction. Second, benefit from a biography. It's hard to learn a language unless you are immersed in hearing it. It's hard to learn to pray unless you see it. You see people do it. And I encourage you, you could read this book and watch someone who knows how to pray in their praying and benefit. And then third, I want you to partner up to pray. Partner up to pray. Do this with others. This might be the single most helpful thing you might do this year is to enlist someone else to pray with you for the things you're praying for. D.A. Carson said of partnering up, he said the Western church needs nothing more urgently than groups of believers, unknown, unsought, privately, faithfully, without promotion or fanfare, covenanting together to seek God's face, praying urgently for what is best as we contemplate the day of Jesus Christ. Praying, in short, for revival. What would the end of these things be? God is sovereign and full of compassion. Who knows what He might do? Friends, it always happens after prayer. If you have been convicted to take action, I implore you, take action. And may that action include not only a call out to God in repentance and asking for help, but talking to someone to do this alongside you. And may 2020 be a year where God receives much glory because we come to Him with all our needs and He proves His reliability by meeting them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, bring glory to Yourself, we ask, as You show Yourself to be strong and kind and generous in response to our prayers. Help us to be steadfast, watchful, thankful, 
and missional in our prayers. You might be glorified and we might be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.